Hi there, I'm Rob Verkirk, the Founder, Executive and Scientific Director of Alliance for Natural Health International. I'm here to bring you our latest New Look Coronacast, brought to you courtesy of our two new team members, Mike Abbott and Ismail Fayyad, to run our new media unit. I want to take you through some of the latest science on the COVID pandemic, where we are on the pandemic wave when it comes to deaths and infection rates. We're also going to comment on the UK's new one metre plus social distancing rule and give you an update on vaccines. We'll then look briefly at some of the unfolding science on the virus's origins, including the difficulty anyone might have to ridicule the idea that the virus may have originated from a lab. And finally, we're going to look at the travesty of government's failures to get behind the things all of us can do with natural health to build our immune resilience. How about a few pence or cents a day on vitamin D at way higher levels than governments are suggesting to potentially save thousands of lives? A quick look at the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center might have you believe that there is a 5.2% mortality rate across the globe. But you've got to remember that's only for confirmed cases. So let's try and get this into perspective. The global annual death rate in 2019 based on United Nations data from the Department of Economic and Social Affairs was 58,394,000. This means that the current death rate related to but not caused by COVID of 472,539 represents just under 1%, in fact 0.81% um, to be more accurate, of a death rate in a normal year. In 2018, based on World Health Organization data, 2,947,050 people died from flu and pneumonia, this being the fourth leading cause of death worldwide. This is almost the same number of people who died of lung diseases like COPD, the third biggest killer. So in fact, if you had COVID-related deaths on top of those figures, which is in effect a kind of viral pneumonia, it would push influenza pneumonia deaths including COVID, into the third position worldwide. The take home here is that a lot of people have already been dying of lung diseases, influenza, and pneumonia. In fact, together, using the 2018 data, they made up almost 6 million deaths worldwide, putting the deaths from these diseases ahead of stroke deaths in second position globally. Coronary heart disease remains easily the biggest killer, but you'll know too that people with heart disease, lung disease, diabetes and obesity, all among the leading killers themselves, especially in industrialized countries, are also much more susceptible to COVID than others. Another way of looking at COVID-related deaths is by looking at rolling averages, seven-day rolling averages. This allows us to get a good idea of where we are on the trajectory, how far we are down the slope of the main epidemic wave, well, in many countries, including the UK, we're clearly a long way down that slope, as we can see here in this Our World in Data graph. But let's remember to remind ourselves that the death counts have been 
particularly inaccurate because of the suspension of post-mortems and pathology services in most countries, meaning it's been wrong to do as the media often do and refer to these as COVID deaths when it implies that they were COVID caused, whereas they're simply COVID associated or sometimes even just COVID allocated where there's been a bit of fudging. As so aptly put by Dr. John Lee in an article in the UK Spectator magazine, for which ironically Boris Johnson once acted as editor. When we don't know what deaths are caused by COVID or not, as we've explained in a pre previous coronacast, a more reliable measure is excess mortality. That's looking at any excess of deaths compared with those that would be expected in a given month or a year based on previous and recent history. Here it's useful to look at the 24 Euromomo partner countries, the data from which were pulled through the European Mortality Monitoring Project established originally by the European Commission in 2000, uh, 2008. But it's now supported by the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC, as well as the WHO Regional Office for Europe. If we look now just at straight deaths by age across all 24 Euromomo partner countries, the first thing you notice is there's a very clear and sharp peak for all ages, but it's quite short and sharp. So while there were more deaths, a higher spike for this year's winter, the excess, lasted a shorter time than the excess winter mortalities in any of the three previous years, especially for 2018. This begs the question, who's been dying most and in which countries? So let's look at age first of all. Well, it's certainly not the youngsters up to 14 years of age. In fact, they've been doing great, clearly not being impacted by the diversion of the healthcare systems towards COVID. You then see a bit of a spike for the 15 to 44 year olds and don't forget to keep a keen eye on that vertical axis. The peak is some 1,500 over a population in the Euromomo 24 countries of around 400 million. Not so many. And as we get into progressively older groups, the numbers get higher with a peak for the 65 to 85 year olds. Those are the group with the high rates of comorbidities like the raised blood pressure, the hypertension, lung disease, diabetes, and so on. But there are lots of other indicators of poor immune function too. One of them that's interesting is the presence of other persistent infections, like, for example, cytomegalovirus or CMV. Professor Paul Moss from the um, Cancer Immunology and Immunotherapy Center in Edgbaston, Birmingham, UK, has shown a very clear correlation between persistent CMV infection and those most likely to die from COVID. It all helps build this picture of age-related loss of function of the immune system, the process called immunosenescence, that we know isn't something that we can't help to avert, particularly given the right diets, the right nutrients, the right lifestyle, and the right environment. The levels for the 85s and over are less raised, possibly because there's been a very conscious effort to shield the oldest groups. It also shows that avoiding transmission into care homes, that's been a hot topic in the mainstream media, hasn't been a complete failure across the board, at least among the Euromomo partner countries. 
When you look at the excess deaths by country, things get really interesting. Here we're looking at a thing called the Z-score um, by country, which is a statistic based around the changes in the standard deviation of the excess mortalities compared against baseline data, according to a model that was developed in 1996. It is effectively um, a measure of excess mortality. It tells you a lot about the pattern of excess mortality over time. And here you'll see that some European countries like Austria, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Germany, the list goes on, have been absolutely had no excess mortality whatsoever. Others like Ireland have seen a small blip followed by a negative excess. Yes, that's a kind of double negative, meaning there's been no excess at all. In fact, deaths are significantly lower than baseline. The same negative excess is seen in France, in Ireland, Italy, Northern Ireland, and in Wales. We'll know later in the summer where we've got to across the board, but when we see this negative excess, what it shows is a kind of concertinering of deaths, where the most vulnerable people who are most likely to die because of their comorbidities, their susceptibility, including if they represent black or Asian ethnic groups, and if they have weakened immune systems, particularly courtesy of their age, these get taken out more quickly rather than their deaths being spread out over the next month or two. Then the virus has to face a more, re more resistant host, so fewer people die. So you end up with an apparent reduction in excess mortality because those who would have died during the normal time course have already, sadly, been taken out. When it comes to rates of infection, the UK infection rate has dropped to 1 in 1,700 from 1 in 400 at the peak. You can see the trend here when you look at the seven-day rolling averages in this Our World in Data graph. In fact, the UK is so far down the wave, it's of course the trigger for easing lockdowns despite a pretty ropey start to the UK's supposedly world-beating NHS test and trace system. But it begs the question of why not open up everything while still shielding the vulnerable, effectively the Swedish model. You remember the reason given, to the public at least, was that the population had to be locked down to protect the NHS. That's what Ferguson's now partially discredited model was all about. Well, the hospitals are certainly not spilling over with COVID cases. So where's the rationale, rationale for not being more Swedish and trying to enable the virus to move more freely through the healthy population so you can actually reduce the risk of a second wave this autumn. Well, we've been unable to find any such rationale, scientific or otherwise. The big news is that the UK moves from the two meters social distancing rule to the one meter plus rule on the 4th of July just like a lot of European neighbours, in fact. The science on this, well, it's pretty flimsy to say the least, and mostly based on other respiratory viruses like influenza A. Flimsy science put in the hands of politicians makes for confusing directives. That's why it's going to be okay in the UK to go to the pub or meet a hundred of your friends in a shopping centre but you can't meet more than six friends in your back garden, or why hairdressers will open, but massage and beauty therapists must still wait in the sidelines. The fact is, there are many other factors involved in transmission other than just the proxim proximity of people 
um, to each other. Critical is the length of time virus particles are able to remain viable in different environments. The answer is a very short time in outdoor, more exposed environments and hours, potentially a day or two in indoor environments. Then in what form do the virus particles get transmitted? Well, either through contact of dried or still wet surfaces, particularly hard surfaces, which is where all the hand washing comes in. When it comes to aerial droplets, it's long been known that it will either be via larger airborne droplets from coughing, sneezing or talking, the spluttering effect, especially on hard consonants like T's or P's, or it will be via tiny aerosols that can stay airborne for hours. The more people in an indoor space and the worse the out-to-indoor ventilation, the greater the risk of transmission. So while masks might reduce the potential for droplets and aerosols, they far from reduce the risk from contact. In fact, some studies suggest that we might increase the risk because we tend to handle our faces more when we wear masks and touch other things and the masks become uncomfortable and damp, effectively creating on the mask and within us the perfect breeding ground for lots of different respiratory disease organisms. A Chinese study on kids in three or six person dorms published in PLOS One in 2011 looking at the other well-known coronavirus, the common cold, found that kids in crowded dormitories with poor ventilation suffered seven times greater risks of getting more than six colds a year than kids sleeping in moderately well-ventilated dorms. The take-home here is, which is exactly the same as that which your grandma suggested, keep the windows open. Don't live, sleep or recreate in hermetically sealed environments. Open the doors and windows. Get some good cross-flow ventilation flowing in, from and into the outside world. It's all go in the vaccine community. There's dozens of different vaccines in development. There's eight currently in phase one trials. And according to a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, the earliest date of rollout will be around January 2021. Probably by around September, we'll get the first news of efficacy from researchers, but they'll need to show that it's not just raised antibodies. They'll need to show that vaccine actually works when vaccinated people are exposed to naturally acquired infections, assuming there's enough about at that time of year. Um, given the extent of lockdowns, it seems fairly likely that even then there will be pockets of infection out there as we move um, into the uh, Northern Hemisphere winter. The big one for us is safety. Three months is just not enough time to determine long-term safety. On top of that, there's the long history of vaccine makers and regulators concealing the raw data from trials, as well as not clearly declaring the adverse effects that they see caused by the vaccine or the adjuvants in the vaccine. This is the reason why we launched our Vaccine Transparency Manifesto last month. Only with full transparency of data, which allows the data to be analyzed and evaluated by independent researchers and scientists, can there be properly informed consent. The scientific literature on vaccines is currently awash with more concerns about vaccine hesitancy that the WHO has put in their top 10 list of global health threats. 
So you need to expect more information coming from governments and the mainstream media that's designed to allay our concerns. The problem is they'll often be doing this without any meaningful data. The vaccine lobby is going to have to learn that the public's hesitancy is driven by a lack of confidence in it being given accurate information uh, around transparent data. That needs to change, which is why we need to keep pushing our elected representatives to demand vaccine transparency. So where did this coronavirus come from? Jonathan Latham and Alison Wilson remind us in their article in Independent Science News that it's going to be tough for governments and health authorities to dispel the idea that the SARS coronavirus 2 virus is has naturally evolved its ability to transmit human to human as opposed to it coming out of a lab. Well, there's more and more evidence that bats must have been the main reservoir species. There's still no clear evidence that properly solves the mystery of the virus's adaptations to humans. Pangolins are still in on the equation. And we now know too that even the original story of person zero in China being infected in the wet animal market of Wuhan is wrong. In fact, 14 of the original 41 first cases, including the first, have been shown conclusively not to have originated from the Wuhan wet market. And while governments try to suggest that escapes from biosafety level 4 facilities are rare, that's patently untrue. It happens quite often. What about this case from Fort Detrick in Maryland that Judy Mikovich writes about in great detail in her now best-selling book, The Plague of Corruption? Or this report on US Today that shows it happens regularly. The public just doesn't get told about it. Both the US National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization have pulled their trials on hydroxychloroquine. They argue that while they've not shown significant harm, there's also no evidence of benefit compared with placebo controls in hospitalized patients. One wonders what the raw da data really say. On top of that, there's more evidence that natural products are the answer. For those of us who are immersed in the world of natural health, this is actually no surprise. The immune system has evolved over millennia, relying on resources and information it gets from compounds we ingest or imbibe that come from our food. A paper just published in the, in the journal Nutrients reminds us of the epidemic associated with the standard American diet relating to deficiencies in key micronutrients like vitamins A, C, D, E and zinc, all crucial for the immune system. Montreal researchers in Canada announced the start of a clinical trial they'll supervise in China on the plant compound quercetin that you get naturally in foods like capers, herbs like dill and coriander or cilantro, red onions, watercress and kale. The reality is a simple one. The prejudice shown by many governments, particularly Western ones, to the use of natural compounds to treat COVID patients has cost lives. That's well demonstrated if you look, for example, at the success of the group of emergency doctors in the US that have come together under the banner of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Working Group using their MathPlus protocol. Their clinical experience 
shows that around 98% of patients to which the MathPlus protocol has been delivered survive. Um, they're dispersed between different critical care centers around the USA, but the results speak for themselves. Yet they've been met by a brick wall, such as the need by governments and the pharma industry to rely on patented medicines. Orthomolecular doctors too, who rely on the use of micronutrients, have also been frustrated by this and have released a statement called Fix COVID Now through the Orthomolecular Medicine News Service, the OMNS, that we've also uploaded onto our website. Two vitamins, vitamins D and C, can reduce the risk of dying by around 90% if taken in the right amounts, much more than the, advise, than the amounts advised by governments. The cost is less than around about $2 a day. Slovenia and Egypt have picked this up already, running it through their governments. Why can't Western countries like the UK and the USA that have been hit really hard by COVID do the same? I'll leave you with this. History tells us that most governments will continue to strongly resist admitting the value, the power, and the cost effectiveness of using foods, natural products, and other natural means to manage our health, especially when the patented medicine toolbox has got nothing in it that works. But this fails to recognize how our immune systems have evolved and what resources and information they need to function optimally. The only solution available to most of us is to put ourselves in the driving seat of our own health. This way, you'll not only protect yourselves and your loved ones, you'll also take the pressure off the healthcare system, which frankly, right now isn't under a lot of pressure in most countries anyway. But of course, it will be if the infection rates start rising again because the lockdowns have prevented the building up of naturally acquired herd immunity. I'll leave you with that final thought. And thanks for watching. And if you found this Coronacast helpful, please don't forget to like and to share it. And see you next time.